right. At this time, I'm going to invite you to go ahead and get your Bibles out. Uh, We, of course, are in the Gospel of John. If you're a guest this morning to Faith Lutheran Church, um, back in January, we started a sermon series going through the Gospel of John, uh, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And uh, we have come to the point, as Jeff said at the beginning, uh, we are in John 17 today. And um, uh, this is known as the farewell discourse. And um, have you ever like stood in your driveway and said goodbye to someone for a really, really long time? Um, that's what this is. Um, some of you actually do that every Sunday here at Faith. Um, you stand here and you talk for a long time. Then you go out to the parking lot for a long time. I wave goodbye to many of you, and you're still here talking. And I don't know how long you stay, but this is called the farewell discourse. It is the long goodbye. And I think one of the reasons why uh, Jesus took so much time uh, to uh, have this long goodbye with his disciples This farewell discourse is uh, John 13 and 14, Uh, so they're sharing a meal together, and Jesus is explaining to them uh, that he's going to leave, that he's going to go away, Uh, but not just kind of go away, uh, that he is going to be killed. And the disciples uh, start to get really, really anxious, and so after a little bit of time, uh, they stand up and they start walking, and that uh, Jesus continues to teach and explain to them uh, that even though he's leaving, even though he's going away, that the Holy Spirit, uh, the paraclete, the advocate, the comforter is going to continue to lead them and guide them. And that goes on for a couple more chapters. And then we get to John 17, uh, where Jesus kind of puts a bow on it. He kind of wraps it all together and he starts praying for them. And uh, immediately following in John 18, um, then they arrive at the Garden of Gethsemane. And you guys have all uh, been around church. You guys have all been uh, spent some time in the Word. And you know that John 18, uh, the Garden of Gethsemane, of course, is where Jesus uh, is arrested and things go really, really south. And so it's this long goodbye, this farewell discourse And throughout Jesus' ministry, for three years, there's this crescendo, there's this growing energy, and more and more people are following Jesus as disciples. It first started just, frankly, with a handful of disciples, just just one handful. And then pretty soon there were two handfuls. And then Jesus healed people, and there were more people following Jesus. And then Jesus fed people. And then there were more followers of Jesus. And then Jesus performed more miracles. And there were more people. And then Jesus heals, uh, brings a dead man uh, back to life. And people are like, this is kind of over the top. And people really weren't sure what to do. And so at this point in time, Jesus starts getting real blunt and talking very plainly uh, with the people. And he says, "Um, by the way, after I'm gone, what I want you to do is uh, eat my flesh and drink my blood. And at that point in time, uh, the the teaching got really weird, and many people said, yeah, we're not following him anymore. And so Jesus needs a lot of time to kind of unpack what all that is going on in this farewell discourse. And um, sometimes we call this the high priestly prayer. And this makes a lot of sense because a priest, a Jewish priest, what they would do is they were an intercessor. They were the go-between between the people and between God. And so Jesus being the high priest, this is a prayer of intercession uh, that Jesus is praying. So we're going to look at John 17 this morning, this high priestly prayer where Jesus prays first for himself 
Then he prays for the disciples. And today we're going to get to this point where he prays uh, for you and for me. What scripture says is for those who will believe in me. And so for the past 2,000 years, Jesus both answered that prayer and continues uh, to answer that prayer. And I think it's interesting for all the challenges, for all the things, for all the obstacles that we face as, as Christ followers, as Christians, Jesus prays for unity. I think it's really interesting that Jesus does not pray for us. The, the last prayer that he prays for us He doesn't pray for boldness. He doesn't pray for courage. He doesn't pray for wisdom. He doesn't pray for, I don't know, skills to run the church. He doesn't even pray that we would be good evangelists. He doesn't pray for us to, uh, that we would have resources and money. He doesn't pray that we would have great leadership. He doesn't pray for any of those things. He prays for unity. And I think the reason why Jesus prays for unity is because Jesus knew it was going to be hard for us to be followers of Jesus Christ. The one area of being a Jesus follower, of being a Christian, that would undo us as a church was one another, getting along with one another. As someone once said, the church is awesome if it weren't for all the people. Amen? Yeah, this is what is really, really hard about being a Christian. Jesus knew this. So let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, that as we have gathered together to worship you this morning, that you have prayed a prayer of intercession for us, and your intercession continues to be prayed over us. And so God, as we look at this prayer May the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable, for you are indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So on a particular Sunday morning, a husband and wife were getting ready for church. And the wife gets up a little bit early that morning, and she, you know, eats breakfast, gets dressed, grabs her purse, she's getting ready to head out the door. And she sees her husband still in his pajamas. She's like, hey, it's Sunday. It's time for church. Let's go. He says, I'm not going to church today. She says, what? Why aren't you going to church? Give me one reason why you're not going to church today. He said, actually, I'm going to give you three reasons why I'm not going to church today. Number one, church is cold and uncaring. Number two, nobody at church likes me. And number three, I don't feel like going to church on Sunday morning. The wife looks at the husband and says, well, I'm going to give you three reasons why I think you need to go to church. Number one, church is sometimes warm and friendly. Number two, there are a few people that like you. And number three, You're the pastor. So put your clothes on. We're going to church. Sometimes going to church is a little bit of work, right? Maybe even for the pastor. You know, I think as Christians, 
we struggle with what it means to be a Jesus follower, what it means to be a Christian. And so I want to kind of break this down into three different categories. Number one, I don't think we really struggle with Jesus. We like Jesus. Jesus makes us happy. We like to read Jesus stories, right? I mean, who doesn't like Jesus? Even non-Christians like Jesus, right? Jesus is awesome. Then there's the Bible and theology. Eh, we're not quite, I mean, we think it's mostly good. We, we kind of like Scripture, right? It makes us think. It challenges us. It encourages us sometimes. But sometimes it confuses us. Sometimes it challenges us too much. Sometimes Scripture makes us uncomfortable. But then there are the Christians, the Jesus followers. That is a whole nother story, right? I mean, if we could just have Jesus without the church, it would be so much better. Those people in the church. Can I get an amen? Yeah, sometimes it is really hard to be around other Jesus followers. You know, Jesus understood that what was going to undo the church was not going to be the lions that would eat the, the Christians. It wasn't going to be burning at the stake of Christians who proclaimed Jesus' name. It wasn't going to be the torture, the flogging, the arrests, all that. That wasn't going to be the problem with the church. It was going to be the people. It was going to be the Christians where the church would just implode upon itself. And so Jesus prays for unity. This is why he prays the way he does. So let's look at John 17, verse 20. My prayer is not for them alone, meaning the disciples. I pray also for those who will believe in me, that's you, through their message, that all may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. And so we've got 2,000 years now of church history, of Christian history, of uh, what it means to be Jesus followers. And we think about this prayer of Jesus, this prayer of unity. And isn't it interesting that the disciples argued with one another like cats and dogs? Even the disciples, those who were closest to Jesus, fought. Then we read about the Apostle Paul in the early church. Many, many disagreements Paul was always rebuking people, and there was all sorts of uh, church infighting. Some of the books in the Bible were actually written because there was so much disunity in the early church. And it wasn't just when the, when the canon came together or the Bible came together, but the church continued to argue with one another. I'm the Pope. No, I'm the Pope. Do you know that once upon a time in real life, there were actually three different popes all claimed to be the authority of the church? And then they would move around wherever the head of the church was, and they couldn't agree on anything. And over and over and over, people continued to disagree and be disunified in the life of the church. Then we get to the Reformation, doesn't get any better, does it, folks? It continues, the church continues to divide and divide and divide. Luther could not get along with Calvin. 
They couldn't get along with Zwingli. They couldn't get along with any of the other reformers. And things just continued to divide and divide and divide. Today, there are over 40,000 different denominations around the world. Not 40,000 churches, 40,000 denominations or church bodies. And so we ask ourselves, okay, Jesus, you prayed this prayer for unity. Where's the unity? Did God answer Jesus' prayer in this moment? And I want to begin by saying yes. Absolutely, God answered Jesus' prayer of unity. The Lord's Prayer. And the first thing I want to talk to you about this morning is this idea of spiritual unity. In other words, what Jesus is praying for is going to happen, frankly, in just a matter of hours. That Jesus is going to die on a cross for you and for me. And as he pushes up on his nail-pierced hands and feet, he proclaims to Telestai, it is finished. And in that moment when Jesus proclaims it is finished, what he is declaring, what he is stating is that he has taken on all the sins of the world, your sins and my sins. And so when Jesus has taken our sins upon himself, what he is saying is that they are, once he has done that and you have given him your life, that you are now one with Jesus. Let me put it this way. If you have surrendered your life to Jesus, if you have received him as both Savior and Lord in your life, he has made you righteous. He has declared you righteous. He has taken your sins. He has washed them away from your life. You are cleansed. You are sanctified. And in that moment, you are made one with Jesus. You are made one with God. And so do you hear this spiritual unity that is going on? It's in the past. It's in the rearview mirror. If you are in Christ, then you are, with, you are unified with God, which means that all of us who are in Christ are also unified with one another. This is where the unity comes from that Jesus is praying about. And so we think about this. This idea of what does it mean to be the church and for the church as Christians, as Jesus followers, to be unified. The theological term or the theological idea behind this spiritual unity, what has already happened on the cross, the theological term is called the invisible church. It became popular, became first an idea, a concept back in the second century a theologian by the name of Clement came up with this idea of the invisible church. And so people talked about the invisible church for quite a while. But who really made this whole idea popular was several years later. John Calvin said this, the invisible church is that which is actually in God's presence into which no persons are received, but those who are children of God by the grace of adoption and true members of Christ, by sanctification of the Holy Spirit. So what Calvin is saying is, there's an invisible church beyond the visible church. 
In the invisible church, those who are members, those who are part of the invisible church, are those who have surrendered their lives to what Jesus has done for them on the cross, the free gift. Past, present, and future. And this is really good news, I think. Because it reminds us that no matter what happens here at Faith Lutheran Church, or frankly any other church, we are, we are secure in our salvation, that we are united with the church, with all the believers. I don't know if you read about scandals that happen in other churches, not this church, of course. But what the invisible church declares is that it doesn't matter what happens on this earth with this church that we see, these sinful people that we see. Because part of the invisible church is the unity of the body of Christ. Now, there is some bad news in the invisible church. So I want to share that with you this morning as well. Because sometimes people think to themselves, if I just show up to church, then I'm good with Jesus. If I just hang out with the body of Christ, then I'm good. See, this idea of the visible church, sometimes we can mistakenly think, just because you came this morning, just because you tuned in online, that we're all good with Jesus. That's just not true. See, what we are a part of here is both the visible church and the invisible church. The visible church as it relates to our salvation and our true unity with God, it only matters that we are part of that body with the invisible church. Now, the visible church matters for sure what we do here and now. But I don't want anybody to mistakenly think that just because you're part of a church makes you good with Jesus. I once heard uh, somebody say, you, you know, you aren't a Christian just because you go to church any more than you're a hamburger just because you go to McDonald's. I think coming here is really, really important, but make no mistake about it. You are not a Christian because you're part of the visible church. And the other thing I think is really good news about the invisible church, maybe it's bad news, I don't know is that we can't fool Jesus in the invisible church. He knows your heart. He knows if you have surrendered your life to him. He knows if you have uh, received forgiveness and made him your savior. And he knows if you have made him Lord of your life. So there's good news and bad news in all this. And so Jesus invites us. and we, I, the, I just want to continue to just live into this idea that it's already been done, our unity in Christ through what Jesus has done on the cross. Continuing, verse 23. Then the world will know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you love me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, Though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself 
may be in them. And so what Jesus, I think, is saying here is, while the invisible church, we are unified in the invisible church, we still have to live in the visible church today, right? Because there's this idea of being made known so that the love may be manifest, so that the love can be shown. I think most of us would agree that the purpose, one of the purposes of the church, this, this visible church, is to be a witness to those who don't know Jesus around us. And so Jesus prays for this spiritual unity. That's already happened. But then he also prays for unity as a witness. And that, of course, is happening right now. I mean, people are watching us as the church. You know that, right? If people know that you're a Christian, they're watching you. And they watch how we interact And this is why the visible church really, really matters. Because if somebody is open to hearing the gospel of Jesus, they don't think to themselves, I want to go to that church that argues all the time. I want to go to that church where there's discord. Nobody says that. But I think many people, that is their experience with the church. You ever been a part of a church where there's disunity? Anybody? Just me? Okay, none of you have ever served on church council before, right? And even if you haven't served on church council, I would imagine I could pass around the microphone and every single one of us could share stories of disunity, of people tearing one another down, of people gossiping, people hurting one another. People tearing each other's throats. People angry, saying things. People who maybe even hurt your feelings. That's the church today. The church is a messy place. And since I've got the microphone this morning, I'm going to share one of the stories in my own life about church disunity. That wasn't it, but it, it kind of felt like that. My church disunity story that I want to share with you this morning is uh, several years ago, I was having uh, lunch with a couple Lutheran pastors, and as we were sitting down, uh, I could see that I knew that there was some tension between us, and so I felt like it was important for them to uh, understand where I was coming from uh, in our disunity, or at least what I was perceiving in our disunity. So I explained to them that as a Lutheran, three Lutheran pastors sitting at a table, I explained to them that as me being a Lutheran pastor, what was most important for me in my identity was, number one, that I was a Christian, that I was a Jesus follower. The second most important thing for me as a a Lutheran pastor was that I was part of, and my identity is with the larger body of of, uh, Jesus followers, both locally and around the world and, and everywhere in between. And my third priority uh, as being a Lutheran pastor was being a Lutheran. Now, you would have thought those other two pastors thought I spit on their food. They were so angry with me. I was trying to clear up a kind of a, a situation here, but frankly, things got worse and worse and worse, and an argument broke out. How dare I? have respect for the Baptists. How dare I 
look up to and honor the Pentecostals. And those Reformed people, what's up with that? They were angry. And I will tell you that my relationship with those two Lutheran pastors never got better. In fact, they didn't talk to me for about a week. the, The relationship was just ugly. And we continued to just battle it out. Because I placed unity in the body of Christ over being a Lutheran pastor. Now, I understand where they were coming from. Because oftentimes, many of pastors especially, these battle lines get drawn in seminaries. And I remember when I was in seminary in the early 2000s at Luther Seminary in St. Paul, Minnesota. And one of the things all the the Lutheran uh, professors teach us Lutheran pastors is that we've got the best theology. That we're right. And then they'll go on to explain to the students in the class all the reasons why the other denominations are wrong and faulty in their logic and reasoning. And this, this just gets, this is how we're trained. You got to know this. If you, get, if you know someone that's going to a denominational seminary, this is what, how they are taught to draw the battle lines. But I'll tell you, about 10 years earlier, I had been to another seminary. I went to an ecumenical seminary, a seminary that celebrated and honored the diversity of different church bodies It's called Fuller Seminary. It's in Los Angeles, California, in Pasadena. And the seminary has about 4,000 students with over 100 different countries represented, so a lot of diversity, and over 110 different denominations or Christian bodies. And you might be thinking to yourself, how in the world did that happen? How did that work out that a a whole bunch of different people from different churches Church bodies come together and learn about Scripture and what it means to do ministry. At Fuller Seminary, what I was trained and how we were taught is that we are going to focus on the fundamentals of the church and all the other things that were negotiable, that we were just going let to let them go. And the, the theological term for this is open-handed and close-handed, And close-handed are those issues that have been decided by the church. They are fundamental. These are essential. These are things that we're all going to agree upon. There's no disagreement with these things. Things like the Trinity, the divinity of Jesus, the humanity of Jesus, that Jesus bodily rose from the grave after the third day, and the authority of Scripture. The the Bible is going to speak to us, and we are going to lean into this. Those are closed issues. These are closed-handed ideas. Now, the open-handed issues were ideas or topics like baptism. How much water are we going to use? Some people say, oh, you got to submerge, right? Anybody heard that before? Other people say, ah, sprinkling's good enough. And then there's a whole variety of, you know, how much water are we going to actually use in this baptism? Another open-handed issue is Holy Communion. What is it? How present is Jesus in this meal? Is Jesus fully present? 
or as Catholics would say, transubstantiation, that that's not bread and wine. That is actually the body and the blood of Jesus Christ, that it gets transformed into his flesh and blood. Or others might say, nah, it's, that's symbolism, right? These are open-handed issues. Baptism, communion. Other things are church governance. We're going to agree to disagree on these things. Other things might include music. Open-handed issues are like, hey, we really like the pipe organ. We really like uh, a rock and roll band. We like the, the, the fog and the light show. These are open-handed things. They're not essential to our faith. They're just personal preferences or maybe how we read Scripture. There's diversity in all that. Hey, how do the, the spiritual gifts work? Well, this is what we think. Oh, no, they don't happen anymore today. That was only for the first century. See, do you hear this? There's these ideas that are fundamental and these other ideas that are open-handed, that are they're, they're negotiable. And so at Fuller Seminary, we agreed, the faculty and the students, that we were going to agree on these things and all these other things we were just going to um, have great conversation with. And the number one rule is you were not allowed to criticize anyone else. So I never heard a Baptist criticizing a Presbyterian theology. I never heard a Pentecostal criticize Episcopalian theology. They would only criticize their own theology and critique it. And I think that's a pretty good way for us in our own Christian walk. Because I think our tendency is to look at other denomination, other church bodies' theology and criticize it. I think a better way is for us to critique and analyze our own theology. And so I got to tell you, I had three years of just really rich conversation and dialogue. As a Lutheran, I would go to early morning Orthodox prayers led by an Orthodox priest in Greek. He was doing smells and bells, as we called it, with incense. I had not an idea what, what, what he was saying, but I loved it. And I took classes from Southern Baptist professors. I took uh, classes from Anglican uh, priests. I took classes from Pentecostal uh, professors. I actually one time sat in a classroom and watched someone cast a demon out of someone. That was the Pentecostal class. It's rich. It's really rich, folks. Fuller Seminary is based on this idea of John 17, that in the midst of our diversity, we can be unified. It's not easy. I understand. So Jesus prays for us in this diversity that they may be one. The Apostle Paul, as he traveled around, he would see people arguing in the churches. And one time he wrote a letter to a badly divided church in Corinth. And he tried to encourage them to see unity in diversity. And you might remember in, in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul writes, using the body as an image to explain what it means to be unified. 
with eyes and ears and the nose and the hands and the feet. They're all different parts of the body, but they all need to come together to form the body. It's this great text that he talks about, and then he summarizes this way. So God has put the body together such that extra honor and care are given to those parts that have less dignity. Anybody want to be the spleen of the body? I mean, does anybody even know what the spleen does? But the spleen is an important part of the body. And if you don't have a good functioning spleen, you're going to die. You're in trouble. You're going to get sick. This makes for harmony among the members so that all the members care for one another. If one part suffers, all parts suffer with it. One part is honored, all the parts are glad. All of you together are Christ's body, and each of you is part of it. Paul really understood we got to lean in to John 17 because it is our witness to the world. And I got to tell you this morning, I I just kind of want to celebrate with you all. I think this has been a big part of who we have been over the last five years of leaning into John 17 in our unity with the body of Christ. This is one of the reasons why we support church planning. Because whenever we are focused on planting other churches, what we are saying is this, it's not about us. The kingdom of God is not about us. It is about pouring into other church bodies who are hanging on, who are close-handed, who are faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is why we're supporting the church plant over in Washington. Next Sunday, I'm going to be preaching over there and leading worship. And a group of our our youth are, are going to be going over to help out with that worship service. Our youth, next Sunday, are going to be helping to plant a church as they're preparing to call a pastor. How cool is that? Over in Washington. So good. They're a part of the LCMC uh, network, the same fellowship that we are a part of. We've also helped to plant a church in Atlanta, Georgia, St. Martin Lutheran Church. They are not part of the LCMC network. They are part of what's called the North American Lutheran Church. They have different church governance But our congregation, the leadership of our congregation said, we don't care. They are faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ and his word. We're going to support them. So we've been supporting them over the last several years. Then there's the Spiritual Orphans Network. Who are they? My goodness, what what part of the body are they? They're faithful to the gospel. They are not Lutheran. They're a group of Jesus followers in Albania who are walking with Jesus and they want to grow disciples of Jesus Christ. And then just about an hour south of here in Decatur, Covenant Reformed Baptist Church. We are supporting a Reformed Baptist Church. I got to tell you, that would make some Lutherans lose their minds. Maybe it's made you lose your mind. I don't know, but you're still here. I think it's awesome because when we support Covenant Reformed Lutheran, uh, Covenant Reformed Baptist Church, what we're declaring is Jesus' prayer in John 17, that we can be one, that we are brothers and sisters in Christ, regardless of the theological bend. 
They are faithful to God's word. They are faithful followers of Jesus Christ. And then, then of course, many of you know about the Salt Church right here in town. What denomination is the Salt Church? Well, they're part of the Salt Company, as they call themselves. Well, I don't know that denomination. Are they Lutheran? No. They are part of their own fellowship. But if you look at their statement of faith, if you look at their theology and their practice, they are faithful to Jesus. They are faithful to his words and the Orthodox Christian church. So we don't get bent out of shape. They're Lutheran or not. We're open-handed in how we partner with other church plants. I would imagine with of these different five church plants that we support, our theology aligns with them about 95% of, of all the theologies, probably just 5% that we have some differences with them. Just a little bit. And these are all open-handed things. I, some of these guys believe that, you know, that you have to be submerged in water for baptism. Okay, knock yourself out. Do that. We're not doing that here. I mean, we will do it here at Faith, but we don't think it's absolutely essential. We're okay sprinkling as well. These are open-handed issues, and we can partner with and love and walk alongside those who view baptism uh, in a different way. But it's not just our church plants uh, that we are open-handed with. It's also our ministry partners. Did you know that Midwest Food Bank is run by the apostolic Christians? (gasps) They're not Lutherans, but they are faithful Jesus followers. These are good and faithful Jesus followers. So we support them. We show up over there. We package food. We support the baby fold. Also not Lutheran. In fact, there's a, if you look at that symbol up there, there's a, a cross with a fire on it. That is a symbol of the Methodist church. Oh, they're not Lutheran. We don't care. Because the baby fold believes in life transformation through the power of Jesus Christ. And we walk alongside them and we support them in many different ways. Spark International Mission, I know many of you are involved with that. Also, not a Lutheran organization, but they are faithful Jesus followers. So we're leaning into John 17. This idea of what it means to be unified. Our unity is really, really important. We don't always get it right. I know that. Sometimes I hurt your feelings. Sometimes you hurt my feelings. Sometimes we have disagreements. Sometimes we walk away from church or a meeting going, oh, I want to strangle that person. And I think it's in moments like this where we look to Jesus who reminds us over and over and over that we need to forgive one another, that we need to offer each other grace. To be the unified church, the visible church, I'm just here to tell you, it's not going to happen in this life. It's not going to happen in this world. To be unified in the body of Christ, in in the visible church, it's an aspiration. It's something that we look forward to, we lean into, we strive and struggle towards. We do it filled with love and grace and forgiveness. So if you came this morning thinking that we're just going to be all unified, it's all going to be good, that will happen. 
but only happen when we get to heaven and we join that invisible church for all of eternity. And so I want to just close with this final prayer of Jesus as we're living in the here and now. Jesus says, I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. Jesus is interceding for us. Jesus is interceding for us. He's praying for us. That even though we have disagreements and maybe get frustrated with one another, he's praying for our unity. And I think that's good news. Amen. Lord, we thank you um, that you are a God who comes to us. And Lord, you know how difficult it is to get along with people. Because people are sinful. People are broken. People are filled with hatred and division. And so, God, we first of all just celebrate the invisible church. We thank you, God, for the ways in which you have named us and claimed us and made us already part of the church that has been unified through what your son has done on the cross. That, God, that already we are unified with you and that we are unified with one another. Jesus Christ, suffering and sacrifice on the cross. But God, we live in a, in a broken world. We live in a world where we've still got the visible church that's messy and hard, filled with misunderstandings and disagreements. God, thanks for continuing to pray for us that we can get it better, that we can forgive one another, that we can love one another, that we can honor one another. Or this idea of Christian unity, so important. We get it so wrong. So make us one, God. Make us one. That our witness to the world might be truly something that people see and say to themselves, I want that. I want to be experience the love that those people have, the forgiveness those people have, the grace that those people have. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer.